beginning was the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory full of grace and truth. Hey, good morning. Um, I want to start by apologizing to those who are watching online, because if you're watching online, you're not watching online, because we're having issues with our live stream. Hey, I want to invite you into something fun today. I want to invite you to take a moment, and in your mind, recall the absolute worst, most depraved thing you've ever done. Grab that in your head and hang on to it. Now as you do that, will you stand with me, and we're going to look at our verses from John 8, verses 2 through 11 today. No, you can stand even while you think of your depravity. <laughs> so John 8, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Father, we just come to you in this space. Lord, you know that there's been a little chaos this morning with some technical issues and things, but God, we know that you reign. And, and so even in our fumblings and our failings and, and our struggles, we just hand this time over to you to do with what you will. And Lord, I just ask that your word is spoken with pureness of truth, that it's received with a deep desire to draw closer to you, and that anything I may say that is not the fullness of your truth just falls to the ground and doesn't, doesn't find any ears to land in. And we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, you can have a seat. So in May of 1992, my father passed away at the age of 58. He'd been a career military officer and spent most of his time in military intelligence. He went to church every single Sunday, but he never took communion after his return from Vietnam. There's some things that happen in war, particularly when you're in an area like intelligence, that no human being should have to endure or perpetrate. War brings out the absolute worst in our human nature, and it always has. My father used to say the only people who believe war is glorious are those who have never fought in it. My father couldn't reconcile his faith with certain aspects of his military career, certain aspects of being a soldier. The last week of his life, he finally took communion while he was in the hospital. And I hope 
that receiving communion that one time, literally on his deathbed, somehow brought some redemption to those 20 years of condemnation that he felt. Somehow I pray that God was able to wash all that away. See, my father was a victim of what Dallas Willard and other authors have called the gospel of sin management. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas laments the fact that we have focused so much on salvation and forgiveness of sin, which is essential and critical, but in focusing only on those two things, we've lost the impact of the gospel on our daily lives. In short, we've overemphasized salvation and forgiveness to the point that we've allowed what it means to live in God's kingdom here and now to just sort of fall by the wayside. And salvation and forgiveness are great gifts and we're so thankful to God that we have that. But there's a point to salvation and forgiveness that does not begin after we die. Jesus came to live that we might live an abundant life here and now. And so that gospel becomes about doing good and avoiding bad. But what happens when you have something in your life that you believe is worthy of condemnation. Knowing I'm forgiven, knowing I have salvation, does not always make it possible for me to live in this moment here and now with the things that are in my life that I know are worthy of condemnation. That's why I asked you to think of something in your life that you know is depraved and sinful. See, that sense of living in condemnation without any way out, that's what my father suffered through for 20 years. He believed that things that he had done in wartime could not be forgiven. He believed that unlike the woman that was caught in adultery, Jesus stood before him and said, not only do they all condemn you, but I do as well. And that's a lie. I think we all have this struggle the struggle of things that we look at in ourselves and we say, but I deserve condemnation for this. I'm worthy of condemnation because of this thing. In fact, I would bet that some of you feel that right now because I asked you to think of something that is wrong and bad in your life. Some of you are sitting here right now in a deep place of condemnation thanks to me. I'm glad you are. And here's why. Because by the time we're done with this message, I hope it's gone. I want to show you how Jesus can stand before you and look at you and say, neither do I condemn you. We spend a lot of time trying not to think about those things, don't we? Those things we know that are in our lives. We fight, we don't want to think about it, and then occasionally it just pops up. It just comes back. You might be driving in the car or cutting the grass or cooking dinner or sitting in a classroom and it just comes up. And so here's the question. If Jesus forgave all my sins, why do I feel so shackled to this one thing? Or maybe these multiple things? In short, our abundant life and freedom in Christ is hindered by our sense of condemnation over those things or that thing or the repeated stake mistakes we make or the patterns of sin that we keep seeing in our lives. And only Jesus can resolve this feeling of condemnation because he is our only true freedom. 
And in our verses from John 8 this morning, we find a woman who's been caught in adultery and she's been brought before Jesus. Now before we get too far into this, I need you to understand the level of humiliation that was being thrust upon this woman. She is brought into the temple, probably the outer court, which was a super high traffic area. So they brought her there, not only to a very public place, but here's where the humiliation gets even worse. They brought her to the pinnacle of their spiritual lives. They brought her right into the place where righteousness and holiness and God's presence was and said, we're dropping you in this so that we can catch this preacher in some kind of tangled up test. She didn't matter to them at all. So long as they could trap Jesus on some point of the law, she as a human being became instantly irrelevant to them. It's important to remember that as we see Jesus' response to her. So at the beginning of this scene, this person as a human being who has made mistakes, who has done something wrong, who has violated God's law, is brought into humiliation and shame And those bringing her didn't care about that. The only thing that mattered to them was that she is guilty. Do you ever feel that way about yourself? The only thing that matters is that I am guilty. I need to be treated that way. I treat myself that way. Isn't that the way we as human beings tend to respond to ourselves when we think about the worst parts of our nature, the worst of our behavior? The only thing that matters is that I'm guilty. The humiliation I feel I deserve and the shame that rests on me is my fault because I am guilty. Therefore, I deserve not only feel condemned, but to actually be condemned. Condemnation becomes my default mindset. That's what happened to my father. That's where he lived for 20 years. I know that's my mindset sometimes. Sometimes when I face my biggest failings, the things in my past that are my worst sins, I just feel condemnation. But the worst part of it is, I feel like it's justified. I think we all fall into this gospel of sin management at times. It's a focus on right behavior instead of right relationship. And see, Jesus flips this over in this story in John 8. Listen to this in verse 4. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And here's the problem with their approach. When we feel condemnation, it discounts the image of God in us. When I feel condemnation towards myself or towards someone else, I am discounting the image of God in me. I'm discounting the image of God in you. I'm seeing your actions, not your relationship with God. You see how the Pharisees have removed the woman as a person and a valued human being from the equation? She's not a person in this anymore. She's a guilty sinner. And that's it. They didn't speak of forgiveness or compassion. They went straight to sentencing. Compassion and mercy was not in their mentality. All they wanted was a sentence. Listen to this in Psalm 103, verses 8 through 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abiding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, 
nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And having heard those words, I want you to think back to that thing I asked you to remember at the beginning. Is it starting to push away a little bit? Is it starting to drift off into the distance? See, these Pharisees readily recalled the law of Moses, but they conveniently forgot this truth of God from the Psalm of David. They immediately went to, this is what she deserves, but they ignored this reality about who God is that David shared out. Here's the next thing about condemnation. Condemnation makes more of my depravity than it does of God's mercy. When we feel condemnation and we are in that mindset, we look at ourselves and we say, somehow my depravity is greater than God's mercy. So the the pastoral care person at the hospital that my father was dying in came in and had a conversation with my dad. And he said, do you want to take communion? My dad said, oh no. He said, I've asked you every day if you want to take communion, you never take it, why not? And he told him the story as to why not. And this man, he was a, he's a Catholic priest. He's a retired NFL football player. He played for the Steelers. So you don't see that a lot. We're, as Baptists, we got to get out in the pro sports world and then come back more because this guy was an incredibly big dude, played defensive line for the Steelers. He's sitting at the foot of my dad's bed. He looks at him after my dad says, no, I can't be forgiven because of this thing that happened. And he looks at him and he says, huh, I don't think I've ever met somebody with so much pride. And my dad said, pride, I hate myself. I have for 20 years. He looked at him, he said, no, your pride is that you think you can out God's mercy. That's pride. <laughs> when we feel condemned and we allow ourselves to live in that sense of condemnation, we are actually looking at God and saying, my capacity to sin is greater than your capacity to forgive. Here's the next thing we need to understand about condemnation. Condemnation dies in relationship with Jesus. Listen to this in verse six. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Had a friend who came in town from St. Louis to visit Steve, and, and some of you guys met him last time he was here. Brought his son Cooper. They're going to the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. Um, I can't get a day off to go with them. Can I, Don? Um, but um, last night he said, when I told him we were talking about John 8 today, he said, what did Jesus write in the ground? I said, I'll tell you tomorrow. Because we've all speculated about this, right? You hear people say, well, I wonder what he was writing. Maybe he was writing the sins of all those who were gonna stone this woman. Or maybe he was writing about all the people that this woman had been with. What was he writing? Here's what I tell you about what he was writing on the ground. Personally, I don't think what he was writing on the ground was about what he was writing. I think it was about who was writing. For all I know, he may have just been drawing diddle, doodles in the sand with his finger. Because here's what happened. By bending down and writing on the ground, Jesus has strategically brought every eye in that crowd onto himself. And if they're looking at him, who are they not looking at? The woman. What did he achieve by doing that? 
He brought mercy and compassion on this woman who was standing in a place of humiliation and shame simply by removing the gaze of all those who said, she's guilty, she needs to be sentenced. He gave her back the very things they took from her in an attempt to trap him. A sense of value. A sense of worth. He literally did Psalm 103.10 to her. Listen to this. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's what he did by bending down and writing on the ground. He shifted the focus. They were making it about her. He made it about him. I guarantee you, everybody in that space was going, what's he writing? I can't tell. Can you see? I don't know. Let's look. Get closer. Press in. What's he writing? He did Psalm 103.10 to her. He does Psalm 103.10 to us. If we'll let him. If we'll say, in my condemnation, Lord, I know I'm, I'm falling short of my relationship with you. Maybe he just wants to bend down and write in the ground of your heart. Maybe he just wants you to stop looking at yourself and look at him. And when you do that, to see the sin in your life be removed as far as the east is from the west. When you do that, to see his compassion and mercy fall on you in ways you never dreamed possible because you had a sense of pride over your sin that somehow you could outsin God's mercy. By taking her shame and her humiliation away, what he actually did was invite this woman into a relationship with him. And by bringing her into a relationship, he was going to deal a death blow to her sense of condemnation. Did she deserve to feel condemnation? Well, she was caught in adultery. She broke the law. Do we deserve it? I'll let you answer that. Listen to this in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because there is no condemnation in Christ. He does not look at you with condemnation. Every sinner who meets Jesus does not meet condemnation. They come face to face with mercy and compassion. Do you see why the invitation in the relationship with him is so important because the only place where this woman would not find condemnation was in him. They brought her to the temple to justify their condemnation. Unfortunately, my father missed this when he came face to face with Jesus throughout his life because he was taught a gospel of sin management. You believe in Jesus, you need to go behave right. But what, when I, what about when I don't? What about when I mess up? What about when I fall short? See, here's the deal. The perspective of the gospel of sin management is always on my behavior. The perspective of Jesus is always on the person first, and then my sin. When I stand before Jesus as a sinner, he sees me first, then he sees my sin. He sees me as valued and loved, of tremendous worth, in him, to him, before he sees all my failings. And then if you respond to him, the way he invited this woman into responding to him, by saying, you know what? You are going to be my treasure. 
Above all else, I'm going to desire you. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to pursue you. I want to live in relationship with you above all else. Then he, Psalm 103.12s our sins. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as that, I will move your transgressions from you. He replaces condemnation with compassion and mercy. And make no mistake, he's the one doing this. Nothing you have done or will do can accomplish this. He is the only one who can take our condemnation and lift it off of us and cast it off. So here's what Jesus knew. He knew that condemnation discounts the image of God in us. When I feel condemned or when I condemn others, I'm actually diminishing the image of God in myself and in you. He knew that condemnation makes more of my depravity than it does of God's mercy. That place my father was at. Somehow have the capacity to outsin God's mercy. And then he knew this. Condemnation dies in relationship with him. If you are in relationship with Jesus, condemnation cannot live there. You can cling to it. You can hold on to it. You can believe the lie of it. But you're believing in a ghost. You're holding on to a ghost because it's dead. And now here comes the part where he reveals the ugly truth about condemnation that maybe we don't want to hear. I know that these Pharisees and people at the temple didn't want to hear it. Here's the ugly truth about condemnation. Every one of us deserves it. Listen to verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. Hmm. There was not one person in that temple court who did not deserve condemnation. The need for Jesus to remove our condemnation is actually universal. And I know there are people who don't believe that they need Jesus for this. But can I just say this to you? If you don't believe you need Jesus to overcome your condemnation, tell me that the next time you feel overwhelmed with self-condemnation or when others see your depravity and condemn you. If you think you don't need him then, then I want to invite you to let your own conscience testify to you. Think of the worst things about yourself. The things that you keep hidden away, deep in your mind, deep in your conscience, that you don't want anyone to know about, that feel like an indictment of you as a person. And here's my question. Who is going to resolve those things for you? Who is going to resolve the places in you where you recognize just how depraved you have been at times? You're not going to resolve it. You know how I know that? Because if you could have, you would have. Condemnation is not a warm, fuzzy blanket that makes us feel comfortable in the wintertime. No one seeks it. No one wants it. We don't want to be wrapped up in it. See, we all have a very strong awareness about the worst things in ourselves. And we all condemn ourselves over those things to some degree or another. At times, we, we feel that condemnation. And there's really only two paths to a guilt-free and shame-free life. The first one is to become a sociopath who accepts no responsibility for your actions and has no sense of humanity in yourself or anybody else. 
Anybody signing up for that? I didn't think so. The other path is Jesus. It's the only other path. There is no other way to overcome your sense of condemnation over your past failings because he is the one who takes away the condemnation. That second path is the only realistic, sane option. So we need to see how to get on that path, that path that's Jesus. Listen to this. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The Jesus path of condemnation removal begins when he stands before us. Begins when he says, here am I. What must you do with me? When you know he has seen your sin, when you become aware of his total understanding of just how depraved you are, and he looks you in the eye and says, I do not condemn you. We've all been dragged in front of him. We've all been dropped down where he is. We've all been accused. We've had our sins spoken out loud by the accuser, the enemy, Satan himself, who whispers in our ears, he can't forgive you. He can't take away your condemnation. Remember when you did this? Remember when that happened? See, Satan's hope is that Jesus will look at us and say, yes, yes, accuser, you're right. You're right. This person deserves to be condemned. But Satan also knows Jesus never does that. So he whispers at us, you deserve condemnation. Ignore the voice of Jesus. Listen to your conscience. Your depravity is greater than God's mercy. You're condemned. And he whispers that at us over and over and over again. And in those moments, we have to choose. Am I going to hear the voice of my condemnation? Or am I going to hear the voice of Jesus looking at me saying, I do not condemn you. We need to stand face to face with Jesus. We need to hear him say, I do not condemn you. I know in a room this size, there are many of us in here who have been stuck in things in our past. Stuff we don't want to talk about. Stuff that we've done or stuff that's been done to us that we feel condemned over. Today is the day you stand before Jesus as Satan accuses you, as Satan says, look, he deserves condemnation. She's not worthy of you. And you let him look you in the eye and say, I do not condemn you. I do not condemn you. Now here's the thing. We all want that part, right? But we have to respond to him saying, I do not condemn you. And that response he offers to this woman, tells her exactly how to walk into this sense of no condemnation. He says, go and sin no more. And I know that's the hook, right? That's the rub. 
Because I don't expect any of you to be able to get through the rest of your lives without sinning, and I don't expect to get through the rest of my life without it. But, if my relationship with Jesus is my sole desire, and I become willing to lay down my desires towards sin, to remain in relationship with Him, and I realize that go and sin no more isn't about repaying Jesus for His grace or or earning His grace. It's about realizing that He wants to be in relationship with me so badly that He would take on my condemnation, that He would lay down His own life for the sake of relationship with me. His statement, go and sin no more, moves from a commandment into more of an invitation. It's an invitation to let go of my condemnation from the past because Jesus has taken it. And it's an invitation to live a life that does not bring any new condemnation into it. Because I want to remain in relationship with Him. The gospel is relational. It's about being in relationship with Jesus. When we step into that relationship, when our desires for Him exceed our desire for sin, we actually start moving towards that go and sin no more life. I think if my dad had this concept of the gospel of it being relational rather than behavioral, I think he would have been able to lay aside his sense of condemnation much sooner than than he actually did. I think he would have known this in 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In order to live this life free of condemnation, we have to embrace something, and that something is called repentance. We have to learn to repent. When the Holy Spirit comes to you and convicts you of your sin, you need to embrace that conviction because if you try to push off the conviction, you will land in condemnation. That's what I believe happened to my dad. Conviction says that my sin has been overcome. So why would I, number one, feel condemned and number two, continue to seek it? The Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. It literally means to change one's mind, to change the inner person. So repentance is to change how you think, which results in transformation. In Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So repentance starts with how you think, and then it becomes how you act. If you think you're gonna change your behavior by white knuckling and telling yourself no, you're probably gonna fail. But what if the Holy Spirit transforms the way you think to the degree that you are not the kind of person who wants those things anymore? That's the invitation. We have to practice repentance because it addresses our thoughts. And thoughts lead to changes in behavior. Condemnation tells us we have to do something about our sins. Conviction tells us Jesus has already done something about our sins. And so we have to practice repentance. We have to put our thoughts about our sins 
not in our own minds, but in Christ. Repentance simply says, I will think differently. I will think rightly on Jesus, on myself, on my sins, and on my choices. And then I'll make different choices. Father, we thank you so much for your word, God. But most importantly, I thank you for this woman. I know so many of us have been her. I know so many of us have felt what she felt. I know that many of us have been in positions where we had to publicly face some truly depraved things we did. And God, I pray that anyone in this room who's thinking about those things in their own life right now sees your son standing before them, looking in their eyes, drawing in the ground, and saying, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Father, make that our mindset this week that we can live in a place where there's no condemnation in Jesus. But we can also live out a desire to sin no more, to stay in relationship with him that is strong and deep and fruitful. We ask all that in his name. Amen.